Well, hey there, freaks. Hope you're enjoying this beautiful Tuesday afternoon in March, the week that we uh, set the clocks forward to get a little bit more sunlight. My favorite time of year. I do not like it in the winter when the sun goes down at 5 p.m. every night. But you know what I do like? Stacking sats. I know you freaks do too. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by Lolly. Lolly has worked out relationships with over 750 merchants. Again, that's 750 merchants to help you earn up to 30% back in Bitcoin when you shop online. You just go online, you shop like you normally would at merchants like Jet, Overstock, SeatGeek, Priceline, Hotwire, Walmart, CVS, Best Buy, Gap, Macy's, Hilton, Marriott, and many more. There's more than 750. I wouldn't have enough time to name all of them on this podcast right now. Um, again, Lolly, you download the extension, you shop like you normally would. If you want to give TFTC some love, go to lolly.com slash ref slash TFTC. That's our ref link there. Um, I think we also have spendfiatstacksats.com uh, if you want to make it easier to remember. Lolly, they're helping you guys stack sats. They're helping us stack sats. Go show them some love. And if you're liking this podcast, please subscribe, share, rate, review. All the love goes a long way. I hope you guys love this episode with Jake Stravinsky because I know I did. from the cream. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on an early Tuesday night, about 4 p.m. here in, in Williamsburg. Cold, brisk night. Uh, have a very special guest, a very special topic. We're going to jump into Bitcoin and law. We've got a lawyer lawyer in the house, my lawyer in the house. I'd like to introduce you, freaks, to Jake Shervinsky. Jake, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Marty. Thanks for having me. I'm not your lawyer, <laughs> just to be clear, so there's no... Uh, miscommunication, but yeah, thrilled to be here. I've been listening to Tales from the Crypt for a long time. I think you do amazing work. I, I love talking to Bitcoiners, so yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, I've been telling my mom you're my lawyer, just so she just says so she has a uh, some uh, comfort, you know. Yeah, just give me her address. I can send her a letter correcting her on that. Okay, I will, I will. I will. Okay. Well, we have a lot to talk about uh, in regards to Bitcoin and how it relates to law and and. Uh, Bitcoin from a lawyer's perspective, but before you put your lawyer hat on, this is about you and not Bitcoin and the law in particular. How did you get into Bitcoin? How did you end up here? Um, okay, so yeah, let me give you the let me give you the short version, and then we can we can dive in further depending how much you want to go in, go into. Um, so I actually I came across Bitcoin for the first time in I want to say 2013. Uh, like most people, when I first came across it, I did not understand it. I did not think it was interesting. I, um, I What happened was I was working at a, a different law firm from the one I'm at now, and I had an assignment to look at the recent regulations that had been issued by FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And this was right around when they had put out their first guidance about Bitcoin. So this was uh, 2013 guidance saying that basically Bitcoin exchanges qualified as money transmitters under the Bank Secrecy Act. And so just for this one assignment, I read through this guidance and I spent maybe 20 minutes just to understand enough that I could write a quick summary of what it was. And then I thought, you know, uh, this whole virtual currency thing seems pretty silly to me. Uh, I'm not going to look into this anymore. And that was, that was it for me in 2013. And I didn't really think about it again until probably 2016 uh, when I was working for a judge, a federal judge in Los Angeles. 
And I was a law clerk, so I had a one-year term position with this judge. And my judge brought in another clerk to work uh, with me. There's a few clerks in, in chambers. And this clerk had just come from an exchange in San Francisco where he had been working for the last couple of years. And so I thought, wow, three years later, this Bitcoin thing still exists. I'm kind of surprised. I thought it would be gone by now. And I was uh, talking to this guy when he first started working. And I said, so uh, Bitcoin, that must be really interesting, right? And he looked at me and he said, no, not really. Uh, I'm pretty glad to not be working for that exchange anymore. I don't really think it's going anywhere. And I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> well, I guess I was right. And I guess there's really nothing to see here. So I'm going to forget about it. And then I want to say in early 2017, I saw an article about price, right? Price brings a lot of people into mm -hmm. the space. And the price was going up. I, maybe this was when it went up to 3000 for the first time. Yeah, it would have been like, that would have been like spring, summer. Yeah, I think that's what it was. I think that's what it was. And there was an article about, you know, Bitcoin on the rise again. And I thought, okay, if this thing isn't going to die, I need to figure out what it actually is. And I started reading about it. And I went down the rabbit hole, right, like so many people do. And I spent days and weeks doing nothing but learning about what Bitcoin was, how it functioned as a technical matter. So I, I was studying public key cryptography and proof of work and hashing and digital signatures and, you know, the game theoretical underpinnings of mining and all this stuff. And I was just blown away by it. And, you know, for me, it brought together a lot of different areas that I found, found really fascinating that I've always been really interested in. And so I just, you know, f like I said, fell down the rabbit hole and, and here I am. Was there... Anything like education wise, like what did you study before law or were you driven philosophically to Bitcoin and all or? So I was a psychology and criminal justice double major in college. Um, so not maybe not directly related to Bitcoin, but honestly, isn't everything related to Bitcoin in one way or yeah, another? It touches, right? touches everything at, at it, some point. It really does. So I, th I mean, I think going going back further than that, when I was a kid, I was really into technology. So I, I was a 90s kid. I grew up building PCs and doing a little bit of coding, nothing serious, like HTML, CSS, websites, mm -hmm. things like that. So, you know, I, I certainly couldn't look at the Bitcoin code and have any idea what it is or what it's doing, but, but I've always been really fascinated by technology. And so I think that aspect of it really spoke to me. Uh, just the power of emerging technology that changes fundamentally how we interact with each other, right? The story of our lives has been the rise of the internet, which has fundamentally changed everything about human society, right? 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, the internet was a fad that most people didn't think would amount to much at all. And now, basically everything in the entire world runs in one way or another on the internet. And when I started learning about Bitcoin, I saw the same promise. I know it's, it's a cliche, but I still strongly believe that Bitcoin does for money what the internet did for information. And I think we're just starting to see that happen. No, it's, I mean, it's the biggest theme here at Tales from the Crypt is how quickly uh, the pace of technology uh, sort of innovation is increasing. Like it's changing so fast. Like you said, like a 90s kid building PCs to think of where we are now uh, with the native digital currency. We got we got bendable phones coming out, uh, drones that can follow you. Like how quickly this is all happening and everything's changing so fast and, and trying to adapt to that is, is mind-boggling. Especially 
so that's maybe the first like law topic we can jump into now like trying to to craft the legal system to to, to adapt and evolve with with the technology some would argue it's probably happened slower than than they would like but what are some sort of the obstacles that uh from a, a lawyer's perspective that we face. How much time do we have? Because that's plenty of time. Okay. I told you. Um, there's look, there's a lot. And um, you know, I guess I would start with the fact that generally speaking, the law moves slower than technology, no matter what the technology is. So and just to give you some background about my work, so I'm a litigator. Uh, most of my work is trial-oriented. I do a lot of securities litigation and government enforcement defense. I talk a lot about regulatory and compliance issues, but mostly what I focus on day-to-day is conducting investigations or litigating disputes. So, you know, a lot of my experience comes down to what happens in a courtroom. And just as an example of how slow the law is to catch up with technology, uh, when you have a trial, you often have expert witnesses who testify. And experts are usually uh, utilizing whatever the newest, best technology is to perform some type of analysis. So, for example, in a case involving narcotics or controlled substances, you have experts who are conducting tests using, let's say, a GCMS machine to determine what a substance is. Mm -hmm. It takes courts years, maybe decades, past the point where the scientific community has accepted a new type of technology for the court to decide that it's reliable. So always the law is trying to catch up with technology. We're seeing the same thing now in the crypto industry and with Bitcoin. We have a set of laws in the US, both on a state and federal level, that are designed for a financial system governed by intermediaries. A financial system where, with the exception of transactions of cash person to person, by and large, all financial transactions are routed through third parties that are able to surveil those transactions and then report to the government on what is going on with those transactions. In fact, they are obligated to do so by state and federal law. Cryptocurrency offers a completely separate system. And I think it will take a while for most lawyers, regulators, politicians to understand that the technology can't neatly fit within this old system where you have centralized third parties in between all transactions that occur at a distance. So I you know, I think it will I think it will take a while both to try to adapt the old system to the extent that it can be adapted, but then to think of an entirely new system uh, to the extent that we need one to govern a new financial system that I think we agree will emerge at some point uh, using Bitcoin. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you for the explanation. I feel like we're going to learn a lot in this episode, Freaks. I'm, I'm very excited because uh, this is something that still confuses me. Like, And one thing in particular is like, what is Bitcoin? Like in Japan, it's legal tender. Here, depending on what regulatory agencies speak to, it's a different thing. What is Bitcoin in the eyes of the law in the United States? Um, I think uh, the easiest answer is it's a commodity. Mm -hmm. The reason I say that is because a commodity under the Commodity Exchange Act, which is the federal statute that the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, enforces, the definition of a commodity under that law is basically anything that trades through a futures contract Mm -hmm. somewhere. That's the definition of a commodity. That includes securities. It includes things like wheat or gold. It includes basically everything except for money. Coffee, treasuries. Yeah, you name it, it's a commodity. Um, You know, 
There are other legal qualifications that might apply to Bitcoin, but we're not totally sure yet. So for example, the IRS seems to think that Bitcoin is property for tax purposes. Mm -hmm. The uh, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, seems to think that Bitcoin is money for money transmission purposes. There were at some point some rumblings that maybe Bitcoin is a security as well, although it seems pretty clear now that no one thinks Bitcoin qualifies as a security. So I think the law is still trying to figure out how to define this and what asset class or what definition is most applicable based on the current regulatory frameworks that we have. I think it's entirely possible that at the end of the day, we define a new asset class, which is the class of digital assets. Mm -hmm. That is scarce assets, but that are natively digital with no physical representation whatsoever. And it may be that we need a new type of classification for that type of asset, and it's just too early to really make any progress on that. Right, because, I mean, that's... The industry I come from in particular is futures trading. So you have uh, commodities like corn, wheat, coffee. Uh, they're thrown into like grains. Then you have currencies, U.S. dollar, yen, euro, whatever. Then you have precious metals, uh, gold, silver, palladium and all that. And like I can definitely see like cryptocurrencies or digital assets. Uh, I think it would be... Cl- most closely to those precious metals yeah. and like an asset definition. That's right. As, as a sort of funny aside to the extent that legal humor is funny to the freaks out there, uh, the only two things that are not commodities by law are onions. <laughs> what? Yeah, onions and uh, box office receipts for movies. There are <laughs> exceptions written into the law. I'm not joking. Over the last 50 years, two exceptions written into the law for onions and box office receipts. Anything else can be a commodity, not those two things. Why not? Um, so they both have to do with random events that occurred decades ago. Onions, uh, there was a, a time, I forget when this was, maybe it was in the 50s or 60s, when there was a market player that cornered the market on onion futures and basically destroyed the entire market for, for onions. <laughs> and as a result, Congress was convinced to pass a law saying that onions would not qualify as commodities. Uh, so there are no futures contracts for onions. It is illegal to have a futures contract trading on onions. I can say from experience, I've never traded an onions future contract. That's exactly right. Yeah. You can find weather derivatives. Mm-hmm. You can find basically anything in the world you want to trade, not onions, yeah. and similarly not box office receipts. That's hilarious. How did the box office get involved with That this? one I'm not sure. I'm, it's probably some similar weird <laughs> regulatory capture type industry issue but uh yeah that's look that's how law gets drafted sometimes mm-hmm. you know you start out with big principles and then you tack on little bits here and there and it makes less and less sense as time goes on so what does the world and more particularly the regulatory landscape look like in a world where a new asset class is created and bitcoin falls under this definition as everything easier is there a period in which there's more figuring out to do um do you think there will be more clarity if that's the case or i think there's a lot of figuring out to do i think the reason for that is because of how law enforcement functions in the 21st century so just to give you a little bit of background on that Uh, In the old days, I mean many, many years ago, policing and investigations conducted by law enforcement agencies did not depend on financial transactions or surveillance of financial transactions in nearly the way that it does now. So many years ago, if the police or the FBI or 
name an enforcement agency wanted to investigate a potential crime, they would have to find the crime itself. As time went on, it became easier and easier for them to find crimes through the financial transaction behind the crime as opposed to the crime itself. So a, a really famous example of this is the gangster Al Capone, who was running all kinds of rackets and gambling and uh, you know, drug dealing and murders and all this kind of stuff. They didn't get him on any of that. They got him on tax evasion by tracking the mm -hmm. money that he was making from his criminal conduct and then hitting him for the financial crime as opposed to the violent crimes or any of the other crimes. As the global financial system has developed, the requirements for financial institutions to report suspicious activity to the government have increased to the point where we now have a law enforcement system designed so that law enforcement finds crimes by surveilling our financial activity rather than by detecting the crimes that people are committing. With Bitcoin, at this moment, that is still very easy for them to do. So we have a government that isn't that concerned about Bitcoin, and, and you'll hear a lot of, of FBI agents and federal prosecutors saying, we would love for every criminal to use Bitcoin mm -hmm. to conduct their criminal transactions because it's so easy for us to track what they're doing. When that goes away, when privacy technology comes to Bitcoin, as, as I think we all know at some point it will, the entire law enforcement system that has been developed gets turned on its head. The FBI and, and other law enforcement agencies can no longer catch criminals solely because of their financial activity. That's going to be a huge problem for the government. I don't know what they're going to do to try to combat that, but you better believe the government is not going to give up its best and in some cases only way of enforcing other laws. Um, so I think that it will take a long time and a lot of hard thinking to figure out how we're going to approach law enforcement in a new world where financial surveillance is not so easy. Yeah, I think a lot of Bitcoiners would just say tough luck back to the old days of, of hard, hardcore investigations and in, in on-the-ground police work. Yeah, uh, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and that's in very uh, many ways what we've done with the internet, right? The internet enables many different types of criminal activity that weren't uh, allowed or, or enabled before, that doesn't mean we're going to shut down the internet, right? The internet is a neutral tool that humans can use for whatever purpose they want. If humans can use something to commit crime, they will. That doesn't make it an evil or bad technology. And we've seen that the benefits of the internet far outweigh the issues that it has created, even now as we are struggling with uh, all kinds of issues uh, on social media and with data privacy. You know, no one is saying, let's shut off the internet. And I think we get to a point with Bitcoin where it's the same thing. We're not going to shut it off. We're just going to have to figure out how to deal with some of those tougher issues. Now, yeah, and it reminds me a lot of the conversation I just had with Monsieur Mamadov about we got into the, the argument of is Bitcoin amoral versus moral uh, or can you imbue immorality or morality on it? And we agreed that Bitcoin is like an amoral technology, and again, the morality is is on the second layer above above the protocol, which is dumb and literally has no idea what us humans are doing to use for it. It's just transferring data from from, or it's just manipulating data in the ledger, basically. I completely agree. It, yeah. Bitcoin just is. Bitcoin is a tool, and people can use it for good or bad. And uh, you know, I think that 
we do have to acknowledge that Bitcoin can be used for bad, just like U.S. dollars are used for bad, just like anything that allows us to transfer value from one person to another can be used for bad. That doesn't make Bitcoin bad. Bitcoin itself is is a phenomenally powerful and I think uh, positive tool that can be used for much more good than otherwise. Yeah, and that's... I love where this conversation is going too. So that's, I guess that's where we find ourselves. Like we're at this inflection point where we have built this almost like panopticon like surveillance system uh, via the, the financial system that we're, uh, that we're participating in and, and therefore being tracked within. Uh, and sort of now that we have this tool, this tool of leverage where we can sort of take back some of that, I would argue like inherent freedom and liberty that we should be rewarded as humans, especially here in America. Um, from a lawyer's perspective, and I don't know if you've done any lobbying efforts or something like that, but somebody who's interacting with the government and trying to explain this stuff for them, uh, how is that process, and and is it a fun one, and is it worthwhile? Yeah. So I'm not a lobbyist. Yeah. Uh, I do, however, talk a lot with regulators about how they're approaching the space. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, as a litigator, most of the people I'm talking to are enforcement lawyers in the government. So we're talking about uh, the SEC's Division of Enforcement, same thing at the CFTC, federal prosecutors at the Department of Justice or in the United States Attorney's offices. I don't spend a lot of time talking to politicians. Mm -hmm. uh, the interesting thing is law is made by legislators, but it's enforced by lawyers working for these enforcement agencies. And so there are a couple of different ways to try to get a sense of what the government is going to do with a new technology like this. One is to talk to the politicians and figure out what kind of laws they intend to pass to govern this new industry. Mm -hmm. The other is to talk to the prosecutors about what they're actually going to enforce. And we see in the US plenty of laws on the books that the enforcers just decide are not going to be enforced. So we're seeing this right now to some degree with marijuana laws, right? Mm -hmm. Marijuana is without question uh, illegal. One. It's a Schedule One drug under the Controlled Substances Act under federal law. And yet you see so many states that are adopting, you know, laws that either uh, decriminalize or legalize medical or recreational marijuana use. And then we see entire industries popping up in these states. So, you know, the reason this is allowed to occur is because the federal government more or less has taken the view that it's not going to go after that type of conduct. So we spend a lot of time, uh, you know, as defense attorneys talking to the prosecutors about what are they really going to go after. So far, they are taking a pretty intelligent view, I think, on the space. I don't think the SEC is out to destroy the crypto industry. Uh, you know, they're certainly not out to destroy Bitcoin. I don't think that the SEC cares much at all about Bitcoin. I think that other agencies like OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which handles trade sanctions laws, mm -hmm. and FinCEN, I think they're more interested in Bitcoin, but they're not talking about shutting it down. They're talking about understanding what the value is and what the benefits might be for the U.S. in terms of innovation and entrepreneurship, right? The last thing that the government wants to do is drive an emerging industry overseas to other countries that are willing to let it flourish because that means lost jobs, which means lost profits, which means those politicians don't get votes anymore. And, you know, a lot of the folks who are running 
government enforcement agencies are political appointees. They're folks who have other political aspirations. They're people who want to go back to the private sector, and they know they may be working with crypto companies in the future. They don't want to be seen as being uh, against the industry. Ben Walski. <laughs> you know, so that, I mean, I, uh, I'll... Uh, I'll refrain from commenting about any particular individuals or companies, but uh, you make a good point. There are, as I said, people who are thinking about what they're doing after government, and they're not necessarily thinking entirely about what the policy should be, but rather how they can position themselves to make more money and be more successful when they're done with their their term in government. It's, it's you know, in D.C., we call it the revolving door, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a very real thing. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It's fascinating like so i didn't mean to call that individual out by name let's talk about uh the law that was enacted the bit license i mean that i mean it seems to hold it's funny because like new york has some like as somebody who lives here in new york and the bitcoin community here thrives like the the mind share that in this city like working around bitcoin like chain code labs and there's a bunch like gemini's here a bunch of other uh, people and not as many companies, but more people and developers in particular working on it live here. But uh, the state in particular, do you think it was uh, uh, worthwhile for them to act as early as they did? It seemed like they were just trying to get ahead of everything and, and put something out there, and it, it seemed like a bunch of word vomit. I think that in retrospect, the bit license was a mistake. I can't say because I wasn't paying attention at the time. As I said, I, I really wasn't uh, focusing on Bitcoin when the bit license framework was adopted. Um, but, you know, I think that having a state regulatory framework for the transaction of an asset that is inherently borderless doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So what you end up having is companies in New York that have to follow certain rules, even though they are serving customers all over the world. And then you have companies in other states that are playing by different rules and then have to decide whether they want to bother with New York or not. So an example of this is Kraken. So Kraken and Jesse Powell is a very interesting guy, the CEO of Kraken, decided he didn't want to put up with the bit license. And so they're just not doing business in New York. I think that's still the case now. Still the case, yep. And so to me, I don't think that state regulation of this type of technology makes any sense at all. I think that you need a federal standard so that every single company in the United States is playing by the same rules. And in an ideal world, you would have cooperation among agencies in other countries. So you might have uh, the UK and France and Germany and other allies of the US who tend, by the way, to cooperate a lot with US regulatory agencies in other areas, coming up with a similar framework for how to handle this type of technology. And that, I think, would help the industry flourish a lot more. I I also think that the bit license framework just isn't that effective. I don't think that that it makes a whole lot of difference in terms of the quality of the custodianship of New York companies versus others or the likelihood of an exchange hack or any of the other types of risks that might come with an entity that's regulated under that framework. So, you know, I think as we move forward, we're going to see a lot of different state efforts to regulate this space, but ultimately we're going to need some federal action before we make real progress in, uh, you know, getting all these legal issues sorted out. Yeah. Do you think that will be anytime soon, federal action, or? No. 
<laughs> I don't. I don't. So, you know, uh, in and it depends also what you mean by federal action. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is regulation. Well, would you consider what Japan has done federal action? Just l- completely labeling it legal tender and defining it as that and then letting it run wild? Or Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a, that is a... Um, Do you think it's a good action for them to make or... That's hard to say. I also, I, I hesitate to make any value judgments at this point, not knowing how things will develop. Uh, you know, look, there there is a risk that comes with crypto exchanges that, that does not come with traditional right. finance companies, right? We see this right now with Quadriga in Canada, where you have a crypto exchange used by a very large number of customers that was custodying a whole lot of assets, a lot of value for those customers. And it turned out it was just one guy who had his private keys on his laptop, allegedly. allegedly. And he, right, allegedly. And maybe he died and maybe he didn't. He but might be on an island with Red fixing a boat right now somewhere. Exactly. I mean, we, we can talk about Quadriga. It's a fascinating case. But I think it's a good example of the fact that we do need to pay attention to these exchanges and we need to make sure that in instances where you do have a third party providing custody for retail investors assets that they're doing a good job it would be better if people understood not your keys not your coins well that's that's been uh another reoccurring topic on this podcast is so that's been something that's been in my mind excuse me in the last six weeks in particular is helping to make it clear to the people that read and listen to my content that Bitcoin is a bearer asset, which is fundamentally different than the cash assets, quote unquote, that you hold in your bank account. Like there's a different responsibility, a different gravity uh, at which you need to approach Bitcoin in particular. And I think uh, definitely there's some legal education that needs to go on, but just general education of, of understanding what this asset represents. Right. I I think that people have trouble with it because it is natively digital. I think that even those of us who understand what the technology is capable of have trouble wrapping our head around this new type of scarce digital asset. If you were to think of it, on the other hand, like a diamond or like gold or some other very valuable good that you can hold in your hand, would you ever walk up to some random person on the street and say, hey, I'm going to give you this however many thousands of dollars worth of gold or diamonds. Please give it back to me someday if you feel like it. No, of course you would never do that. And that's essentially what we do with a lot of these exchanges. Mm -hmm. And so like custody in particular, and that's one thing, uh, another initiative around these parts tales from the crypt is is proof of reserves and so like again with this new type of asset uh it being a digital bearer asset affords us some new functionalities and some cool things that we can do to 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 ensure that the institutions that we're engaging with actually have what they say they're selling us and so do you see a future in which there's a regulatory sort of uh mandate that demands proof of reserves or something like that i i think there could be something like that You know, there already are some regulations around qualified custodianship. Now, typically that has to do with securities, and I don't think Bitcoin is one, so it may not apply in that sense. But there are also some custodianship requirements for, uh, just as an example, commodity pool operators. Would this be like a Basel III type? uh, uh, Because that's what Basel III is about, is... uh Okay, so Basel III was like a part of the Frank Dot or Dodd Frank Act or an offshoot of it that 
tries to ensure capital reserves at the banks, and they have to prove that at certain points in time to the government. Uh, yeah, I you know I think that's that's related, um, and I and I think it's possible that one thing that Congress could do is pass some kind of specific legislation regulating crypto exchanges that requires them to provide some proof of reserves. Now, whether you can convince the U.S. government that there should be 100% no fractional reserve, you know, that's that's kind of hard because that's not how politicians tend to think, right? Traditional banks have 10% in reserve, and it may be difficult to convince politicians that 100% reserves are required, but I, you know I think it would be good to have transparency. And so many of these regulations come down to not forcing a company to do a particular thing or refrain from doing a particular thing, but rather disclosing to their customers and to investors what it is that they are doing. And I think it would be you know I think it's a great idea to have some kind of proof of reserves um, or some requirements of you know, open auditing on a blockchain, right, where it would be possible for third parties to check and see what kind of reserves an exchange is holding. And, uh, you know, it seems like exchanges aren't going to do that on their own. So maybe we do need some government intervention there. Let's make the case for as little regulation as possible. As a lawyer, like, do you, do you envision a framework, a sort of uh, very basic framework from which we can operate and, and sort of... Uh, with light touch instead of being as intrusive as I would argue the bit licenses, like creating 500 grand obstacle or excuse me, barriers to entry just to comply with this, this stuff. Yeah. I, I think light touch is a great way to describe it. I, I think that whenever you have an emerging technology, the light touch is the best possible approach because we just don't know yet what the technology is going to do. If we had had onerous regulation of the internet in the early days, it may not have flourished into what it is now. I feel the same way about Bitcoin and crypto more broadly. Um, you know, what those regulations turn into in the future, I think, has to be guided by what the technology turns into. And I think we're still so early in learning what Bitcoin can do. Uh, you know, we, we understand its use as money, and we understand its use as a store of value and with the Lightning Network as a medium of exchange. But what else can we build on top of it is an open question. And how will a regulatory framework apply to, for example, non-fungible tokens that are issued using Liquid, which Blockstream has been working on, or some other type of decentralized application running on Lightning? Th these are things that we don't know yet, and I, I think the light touch is the only way to approach it until we know what the technology does. Right, and um, what was I going to say? I had a great follow-up to that. I'm always a little bit forgetful here. It'll come back to me. Um, it's the it's the whiskey. I'm it's sure it's the whiskey. It always we're we're enjoying some Bowman Brothers uh, Pioneer Spirit Virginia whiskey, straight bourbon. Shout out to the Mamadov Brothers for sharing this with us. Yeah, thanks guys. This is uh, this is really good. Thanks. Yeah, but in the lines with like, oh, so this is what I wanted to get to. You just go off, you, you ramble for a little bit, and it comes back to you. So again, we we said we don't want we want light touch, but like. Uh, a quote that I wrote about in the bent last week is the price of freedom and liberty is never ending vigilance. And so as people, as users of Bitcoin and in this space, like the users in particular, I would argue. So we were talking about proof of reserves instead of having the government 
get to a point where they're like, all right, people are getting so gypped that we need to step in and mandate that you do proof of reserves. Like, uh, let's make the argument for like active users, like speaking out to these industry players and maybe uh, avoid the government having to step in. Like, do you have anything to say around that? Like, uh, look, I, I think that's a wonderful idea. Yeah. And in principle, I completely agree with you. I think that to the extent that you can have either self-regulation or mm-hmm. in free market influence, right? If, if there was such a groundswell of enthusiasm among Bitcoiners that Bitcoiners would only use an exchange that made it absolutely transparent that they had proof of all of their reserves, then that would be fantastic. That hasn't happened. Right. And Franken offered it and nobody used it. So. Right. Right. And look, after Mt. Gox, if there was anything that was ever going to get the crypto world to demand proof of reserves, it was Mt. Gox. Yeah, three quarters of a million Bitcoin is uh, is it, definitely a, a catalyst to, to think about this stuff. Exactly. And we're still trying to unravel the damage that Mt. Gox did. And we're still trying to understand how the whole thing uh, happened the way that it did. And so I guess what I would say is if Mt. Gox can't convince people to look out for their own personal best interests... I'm not sure what will. There are some interesting self-regulatory efforts uh, in progress right now. You know, there's a new trade association in D.C. called the Blockchain Association. It has some pretty uh, big players behind it, like Coinbase and Circle. I know that the Winklevoss brothers at Gemini are trying to launch or have launched their own self-regulatory association. I think it's called the Virtual Commodity Association or something Mm -hmm. like that. So, you know, I find that interesting. But in the meantime, unfortunately, we are still seeing the victimization of less sophisticated, less informed retail investors who want access to cryptocurrencies but don't understand how to care for themselves or frankly don't understand what they're buying in the first place. And I do think that there is some role of government in protecting those types of investors. Now that's a very broad statement and when you dive into the details of how that gets done in an effective and fair way, it becomes much more difficult. And as you point out, the bit license was an early attempt and I think a very unsuccessful attempt at doing that. So it's easier said than done. But you know what we don't want to see is the proliferation of more frauds and Ponzi schemes and truly malicious conduct that then paints the rest of our entire industry with that uh, you know, unlawful, illicit brush. Um, and so, you know, whatever way we can, we can make this work. I think we need to make it work. Yeah. Well, I would argue are the most egregious sort of breaches of that user trust and and that naivety, the ICOs that we went through in 2017. Um, I mean, just the, the, the enabling of, of that type of money raising mechanism really unleashed human greed on the world. the, The likes of which we probably haven't seen. Uh, obviously ICOs are not hot right now. They're, they're very quiet. Uh, I haven't heard of a, a new ICO launching in months. Uh, it seems as though, uh, regulatory agencies are starting to, to put their cases together. And it seems like that the hammer might come down on this, this part of the industry in particular. What can you say about this? I absolutely agree that the ICO market, the public ICO market is dead. The SEC killed it. For the better, in my yes, opinion. in my opinion as well. Um, what was the second part of, of what you just said? Um, 
ICOs like probably the most egregious like money grab of retail money in the space like uh SEC's coming down. Like, what's happening? Yeah, like, what are they doing? Oh, right. You said right. So you said that the the hammer was going to come down. Yeah. So I would say the public ICO market is dead. I would not say that the hammer is going to come down. No, not in the way that you might be imagining. Okay. So I think that there are a lot of people who believe that any project that issued an unregistered security will be destroyed by the SEC. That's not the case. No, I don't. Uh, there's too many. Right. Agree. There are too many, and also it is too hard for the SEC to achieve that level of an enforcement action against an ICO. Um, you know, you, we, there have only been three settlements so far with with companies or projects that issued uh, tokens in a public sale. Uh, there was Paragon and Airfox last year, and then I think last week there was the Gladius Network. Mm-hmm. None of them had to pay all that much. It was a $250,000 penalty. The promise of rescission for investors who wanted to get refunds for the money that they had put in in the ICO. And then the requirement to register the token and comply with the obligations of the Securities Act. Now, that's not uh, that's not easy to do. It is expensive. But it's also a far cry from the SEC shutting down those companies. Mm-hmm. And in fact, last week, the Gladius Network got away with no penalty penalty at all, in part because they had voluntarily self-reported their ICO as a potential securities violation. And, you know, that's three companies out of how many ICOs were there in 2017? A thousand more. So, you know, I think that for the SEC to go through those companies one by one by one by one and hammer out settlements with each and every single one of them is hard to to imagine happening. Seems logistically uh, nightmarish. Yeah, I mean, look, they they are an agency filled with enforcement lawyers who have limited time to dedicate to any given case, and especially limited time to dedicate to crypto. So we think crypto is everything going on in the whole world, right? right? It's the most important industry on the face of the earth. Now, that may be true. I do think that that's true, but the SEC doesn't. Mm -hmm. Most of what they do is in the traditional finance industry, which is many, many times, many orders of magnitude larger than the market capitalization of the crypto industry. I think that the SEC believes they've more or less set the tone now for what is and isn't legal. They have, as I mentioned, killed the public ICO market. People understand now that you cannot issue a token to raise funds to develop a non-existent (laughs) network on the promise that the people who bought the token will make profit off of your efforts. This is clear now. So, you know, I don't think that the SEC is spending nearly as much time as some people would think or would hope in in uh, addressing those 2017 ICOs that are still out there. Interesting. That's uh, actually a bit surprising for being here. I would uh, I was probably fell in that camp of thought they were going to come down a little harder than. Uh, well, but it makes sense as you describe it. Like it logistically, seems like a nightmare. The news came out that they hired like 50 uh, uh, new employees for enforcement actions, and people are like ran with that. Like ah, oh, they're coming after the ICOs. Like uh, yeah, right. And and of course, the crypto industry thinks that they went and got 50 crypto experts to prosecute <laughs> crypto cases, and that, that couldn't be further from the truth. Right? right. They're hiring great lawyers who can take care of any type of securities issue that comes up, including crypto and including you know, other financial services companies and large banks and Mm -hmm. what have you. So, you know, will there be more focus on crypto than there was maybe a year or two ago? Absolutely. Crypto is in the 
sites of the SEC now. They are paying very close attention in a way that uh, I think that they weren't maybe two years ago. But to imagine a bunch of indictments coming down from the Department of Justice uh, charging the CEOs of ICOs with securities fraud and locking them away for 10 years in prison, I don't think that that's really going to happen. I think that what the SEC wants... A bunch of 23-year-old bros just breathe the sigh of relief. <laughs> well, you know, look, I'll also say, if you get a if you get an indictment or a subpoena, give me a call. That is my job. So if it happens... I have a great are, lawyer. I have a great lawyer. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. So, so I mean, look, I you know, I think what the SEC has been saying in in most of their enforcement orders and these speeches is uh, the ICO market was illegal, and if you conducted an ICO, you should come talk to us. That's what they want. They want people to come in and talk to them, just like the Gladius Network did last week, and work out a deal. And maybe a year from now they'll pick the top 10 ICOs that haven't come in yet to hammer out a deal and they'll turn on the gas and they'll see what they can work out. And, you know, they, they have sent a lot of subpoenas, which, uh, you know, I can go into a little more about what that means, but basically a subpoena is just an initial request for information about a potential violation that the SEC is looking into, but they haven't made any decision about. And they send subpoenas to most ICO projects just to get more information, but they haven't launched enforcement actions against most of them. And often what happens is they send the subpoena and then they don't say anything again for six months or a year because they get distracted by some other case and come back to it. So this stuff moves very slowly. Yeah. So, so All right. This is a good segue, like, back to, like, the pace of innovation. Like, do you see a future in which, like, Bitcoin and the innovation that happens on top of it, maybe via Lightning and the use cases enables, just, like, makes it so, like, the government or regulators cannot act. And if they do act, it's just like, all right, this doesn't even matter anymore. Yes, there's a yes, there is a point to which the government does what they can and forgets about the rest. Yeah. And we see that with the US dollar now, right? So cash still exists, cash is not illegal, cash is used for illicit transactions. And the government's perspective, I think, on a drug deal that you know you could uh, execute using only cash is they're just not going to catch you. And they just kind of have to accept that. And if you become a big enough target, they'll go after you in some other way. But they do what they can and they leave the rest alone. We're, we're going to see this, I think, in the trade sanctions area first before anything else. Where right now, if you wanted to send money to someone in Iran, you would this, not be... This is a big topic on crypto Twitter this week with the lightning torch. Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, yes. it was. I saw... Um, Pierre Rochard and Steve Pally, uh, who's another lawyer in D.C., had an interesting exchange about uh, the lightning torch being sent to someone in Iran. Now, I will tell you that sending money or something of value— As a punk, like, rock, like, mentality, like, I I was willing to send it to Iran. To this dude in particular, because I've talked to him, I've DM'd him, like, you you got to denigrate between Iran and Iranians, right? And— yeah, look, I, I think it's all really interesting. So in December... Delineate, not denigrate, excuse me. Yeah. So in December, 
OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control, which does all the trade sanctions enforcement, sanctioned two Iranian individuals who ran a crypto exchange yep. for their alleged involvement in a ransomware attack on the U.S. where ransom was being paid in Bitcoin and the Bitcoin was supposedly being laundered through this exchange in Iran. Yeah, I think that was um, the cry. What was it? Um yeah, uh, WannaCry. WannaCry. Yes. Yeah, that's right. The WannaCry. So OFAC sanctions these two guys who ran these, this exchange in Iran, and as part of the sanctions, listed their Bitcoin addresses as part of the sanctions, meaning it is illegal to send Bitcoin to either of the two addresses that are listed in the sanctions. So what do you imagine is the first thing that the Bitcoiners do when they see these Bitcoin addresses in the sanctions list, right? They start sending Bitcoin to the addresses as a fuck you to DOFAC. Excuse my language. I imagine it's okay that it's okay. It's okay on this podcast. So, look, I think that's hilarious as someone who supports Bitcoin and uh, the right to transact with whoever you want to transact with as long as you're not hurting anyone or, or committing a crime. Uh, as a lawyer, I would say that's a dangerous thing to do because it is very easy for the government to see that you have conducted that transaction. And indeed, it does violate trade sanctions laws. Now, consider the transaction conducted with an Iranian citizen from the United States in Monero instead of in Bitcoin. OFAC can't detect that, assuming that Monero is secure and private in the way that we believe that it is. Uh, imagine the same thing happening through CoinJoin or TumbleBit or some type of privacy like technology a P2EP on Bitcoin. transaction or something. Like you that. name it, right? Yeah. If it's private, the government isn't going to see it. Now, what they could do is spend an extraordinary amount of time and resources and effort trying to uncover those private transactions, or they could make an intelligent and effective allocation of resources and decide, we can't stop this, so we're not going to look for it. And I think that, especially in talking to some of my colleagues who focus on national security law, that's probably what happens, is they focus on what they can do, and they let the rest go, because there's, there's no point really in trying to stop it. And that's sort of the nature of trade sanctions to begin with, is it's really a tool of foreign policy to try to influence conduct, but it only goes so far as, as the government can make it go. And so I do think there's a point where crypto stops them from being able to address some of these issues. Wow. I think beauty on... Like shaking his fist in the air right now, like pumped, like he's fist pumping right now well, somewhere. Maybe so. That this does not mean, by the way, and I should I should say this. Probably should have said this at the outstart. Nothing that I say here is legal or financial advice. I'm not encouraging anyone to send money to Iran using no. Monero or yeah. any other privacy technology. We're just having a friendly conversation about the future of this industry. Exactly. And no, but it is. I mean, that's why. I wanted to have you in because I love your takes on the space, particularly around the SEC announcement. I'm somebody who's like been in this space, been waiting for an ETF, or excuse me, the ETF in particular, been waiting for an ETF since 2013 and been telling people like it's coming around the corner. I'm like, don't hold your breath. Like it's not coming around the corner. There's no custodial service in the world that would be ironclad enough for an ETF product. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I have a love hate relationship with ETF because I don't I, think it's nice. I mean, I just think it's, uh, like if you want exposure to Bitcoin, why get it via an ETF? That's my whole argument. Like, so I, I think ultimately you're right. I think in the long term you're right. And I, I actually think that a lot of the people who are at the forefront of pushing for an ETF would agree with you. So for example, I think Gabor Gerbach, who's the director of digital asset strategy for Van Eck. Yeah. I don't know if you've had him on or I not. I have not, no. He's a, he's a great guy and he is 
in every way a true believer in the power of Bitcoin. He has a phenomenal personal story about why this matters to him. But I think that even they at Van Eck, and Van Eck is uh, one of the funds that is, I think, closest to getting an ETF passed and is, is most aggressive in pushing the SEC for approval. Even they understand that long term, there isn't a need for the ETF. The ETF is a transitional device to get risk-averse investors to buy into the space. That is, both institutional investors and retail investors who understand the power of a natively digital scarce asset, but do not have the confidence or perhaps aren't willing to take on the risk of custodying those assets themselves or of engaging on crypto exchanges that it seems are heavily manipulated and perhaps um, you know, not the safest to use for any number of reasons. I, you know, I think that the ETF matters for some period of time until and unless you have Bitcoin take on uh, a greater global role, for example, as a reserve currency, where all of a sudden, if we have good applications with good you know, user experiences and other ways to custody assets that are easier, like through Casa or Zappo or Bitco, whoever it is, mm -hmm. when when it gets easier and safer to custody the asset itself, I think the ETF probably doesn't matter anymore. In the interim, uh, there are a lot of people who want access to Bitcoin who are simply not willing to deal with actual Bitcoin. Custodial who, risk, yeah. Exactly, it's custodial risk, and and it's also it's a stamp of approval from the SEC. Yeah, it's one of many Trojan horses for legitimacy, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right, and especially because the main issue with the ETF, and we don't have to get too far into this if you don't want to, but I want to. We're getting into everything. We're fifty-one minutes in. We got plenty of time. All right, cool. So look, the main issue with the ETF is market manipulation. That is the one problem that is stopping the SEC from approving the ETF. And market manipulation manipulation would come not on the ETS in particular, but the futures contracts around Exactly. There? And there's a big dispute about this between yeah. Hester Pierce, one of the commissioners who has been given the nickname Crypto Mom, and the other commissioners who are against approval of an ETF. The prevailing view at the SEC is that for an exchange to list an ETF, the ETF has to be, and this is under Exchange Act Section 6B5, this is just the law, the ETF has to be designed to prevent fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices. The dispute is about whether that means fraud and manipulation on the exchange listing the ETF or fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot and derivative markets where the asset is trading. Yes. Hester Pierce says the only thing that matters is whether the ETF itself will be manipulated on the exchange. In other words, if CBOE wants to list the VanEck SolidX ETF and can guarantee, to a reasonable degree, that the ETF itself will not be manipulated on CBOE's exchange, the ETF should be approved. That's what Hester Pierce thinks. Mm -hmm. The remaining commissioners say that doesn't matter because someone who wants to manipulate the ETF on CBOE can just go to BitMEX and Binance and Coinbase and Bittrex, et cetera, and manipulate Bitcoin there. The inputs, the index inputs. Right? Exactly. And yeah. by doing that, manipulate the price on CBOE. So this is the main concern. Now, the reason that I say approval of an ETF is an important signal from the SEC and from the government is if the SEC were to finally approve an ETF, what they're saying is 
this asset is no longer more manipulated and less trustworthy than gold and oil and the other precious metals and base metals and nuclear materials, etc. Which are all pretty heavily manipulated. Which are all very heavily manipulated, (laughs) but in a way that makes the U.S. government feel comfortable. Exactly. And there are also very large, well-established exchanges for those assets that cooperate with governments that are willing to do intermarket surveillance, like the London Bullion Exchange, Mm -hmm. etc., where they feel the government feels comfortable with them. I don't think the government feels that comfortable with the exchanges that have the most trading volume, which again, I will leave nameless, but we all know there are certain exchanges outside of the U.S. that don't seem to play too well with U.S. regulators. I don't know if we can name this one in particular, but the U.S. government just returned some Bitcoin to it. Uh, I haven't heard about this. Uh, so I'm going to name it now since you haven't heard about it. But Bitfinex, uh, after their hack of 2016, uh, they had 120,000 Bitcoin uh, stolen from them. And the U.S. government, I believe, confiscated, I forget, it was from something. I forget what it was in particular, but one of the exchange uh, exchanges that the U.S. government came down on. They had found that, like, following the UTXO pathway, that, like, something like 40 Bitcoin had come from, like, the hack Bitfinex account. So they sent it back to Bitfinex. Like, so what does this mean? The U.S. government's like, hey, we found your lost Bitcoin, and we're sending it back to you. So I'll avoid saying anything too specific about Bitfinex. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all... Yes, we don't, and I'm not even talking about just like the fact that the U.S. government's like, hey, we found this, we're sending it to any exchange. Yeah, you know, I think I think all that really is, I, I wouldn't read too much into it. I think mm-hmm. what that is is the government probably being obligated to return to the original owner the assets that were taken. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call that a vote of confidence in any way mm-hmm. in the exchange. I could see the government sending an asset back to a particular company and then immediately suing them, saying that they owe that asset to the U.S. government as a penalty for some other type of conduct. So I, I wouldn't read too much into that. Okay. No, because that was something that people were like, whoa, what is this? Like, And that's like, and so like, what are, what are things like the uh, the uh, Silk Road auction where Tim Draper bought 30,000 Bitcoin, like the government was willing to auction Bitcoin to the public. Like, what does that say about their stance or their uh, sort of incentive in this this whole new thing? Yeah, I'm, I think all it really means is they don't view Bitcoin itself as a criminal asset. So, you know, when the government seizes assets... Uh, in any way, whether it's in the course of an investigation or what have you, they have a process to auction off those assets. So you see auctions of cars that were used by drug dealers or yachts or houses or whatever. The only thing they won't auction is a criminal asset. So if they seize a bunch of cocaine from a drug dealer, they're not going to auction off the cocaine. So all that means in my mind is they are comfortable that Bitcoin is at this moment under current law not illegal to allow to circulate among individuals otherwise it means nothing at all yeah no that's pretty dope and that makes you like i mean obviously bitcoin is just the ethos behind it. it's very anti-cypherpunk movement is very anti-state and there's a lot of anti-state sentiment in bitcoin i would argue i have a lot of anti-sentiment in myself as well but it also is like keeping uh keeping 
basically your heart open to the fact that these people may actually be good at the end of the day and the U.S. government may have America's best interests. Like, do you think that is like things like this may may show that like, hey, the government views Bitcoin as legitimate? Maybe do you think the U.S. government wants to become a leader in this industry, quote unquote, like into the future? Not yet. Okay. I think that they can be convinced. Mm hmm. I think that we have only started to think and talk about how something like Bitcoin could be used, again, as a tool by the government to vindicate some of their interests. For example, we know in Venezuela that Bitcoin has been extremely useful for individual citizens to survive the Maduro regime. Mm -hmm. In theory, the U.S. government could deploy something like Bitcoin as a weapon against authoritarian regimes. I would prefer that to military action. Exactly, right. And and you hear people like Alex Gladstein. I don't know if you've if mm -hmm. you've talked to yeah. him. Human I rights. I got dinner with him a couple of weeks ago. We talked about he, this. He, and he's you know I think that when you think about the power of Bitcoin. There's so much to be excited about, but what he's working on at the Human Rights Foundation is one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting aspects of what this technology can do. I think it is absolutely possible to convince politicians and regulators of that power of Bitcoin, not just to free people in other countries, but to to effectuate U.S. foreign policy in really important and, and fundamental ways. In peaceful ways. Exactly, exactly. A and in ways where you can send Bitcoin, let's say you're trying to provide aid to Venezuela, which we're trying to do right now, and we can't because the aid is being held on the border of Colombia. Mm -hmm. Imagine if instead of having to pass aid through the borders and through the government that we're trying in some ways to dismantle in the first place, right? We do We've, it via radio waves. Like. Yeah, exactly, right? We can get that money directly to the people who want it. That is extremely powerful. On the other hand, as we were talking about earlier, there is a threat that Bitcoin poses to the order that the government has been able to maintain, especially through law enforcement, but also through the Federal Reserve and through the control of the money supply. Yeah. And that is probably more threatening than the promise of fighting authoritarian regimes is uh, you know, uh, an attractive concept yeah. to most politicians. No, and yeah, and so that's why I'm into Bitcoin. I've put my whole life into this at this up to this point because um, I do believe that the actions of like the Federal Reserve in particular uh, are undermining sort of the quality of life and and the the ability to climb the social ladder in the United States, which then eats at the fabric of what this country was built on and. I don't want to, I, I am a burn it down guy. I'm a burn it down guy. I'm like a burn down the system. And like, I think, I do think Bitcoin is like a, a better alternative that we can transition to. So like my, I'm not like a burn it down right away guy. I'm a, Hey, I do think that like a Bitcoin standard is something we should transition to. Like, how do we do that in an orderly fashion? Some men just want to watch the world burn. <laughs> I, don't right, want, I want to watch the system burn, not the world. I want the world to cherish. Right. I think the world to cherish, we need to burn this system down yeah. and start it now. So look, my, my take on this is uh, the the system that we've had for a long time, which is a purely fiat currency system where we have dollars backed by nothing other than, I guess, f the full faith and credit of the United States. In other words, our belief that the Fed will not inflate our money into nothing uh, has worked okay for a while. 
there are problems with it. But if you look at human progress over the last hundred years, we've gone really far with this system. It hasn't broken yet. It looks like it's going to break. So this is where I yeah the ammo the 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 tools and the the tricks which the Fed has in its its pocket seem to be dwindling. Exactly, and I, you know this is one of these things that like so much else happens slowly at first, and then all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. So uh, to compare the U.S. dollar to something like BitConnect, which I think is <laughs> an interesting comparison. BitConnect. Look, BitConnect traded at $400 until the day that it crashed down to nothing. Trevin James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, there's. Uh, I, I got to check in on that securities litigation because that's an interesting one. Didn't he have to go... Uh... Did he have to go testify? They've all been named, all those guys, uh, right. you know, forget their other, Carlos the rest Matt of their names. Yeah, they've all yeah. been uh, named as defendants in the case. And anyway, but, you know, my point is, and this is how I explain Bitcoin to, to most people who uh, aren't that interested and I want to make sure I grab their attention. What I explain to them, this is within the U.S., people who, are, who care more about U.S. policy than what goes on in the rest of the world, which for better or worse, is how a lot of people in this country are. They care about what's happening here. What I tell them is we have a $22 trillion national debt. We have a $1.2 trillion deficit. We have absolutely no plan of how to reduce the deficit or how to pay off the debt whatsoever. There are only three possibilities. One is that doesn't really matter, and we can keep growing the debt forever in perpetuity, and nothing bad will ever happen. Modern monetary theory. Exactly. Uh, I don't find that terribly persuasive, especially when a lot of our debt is held by our enemies. And just go back to the simple proverb of nothing lasts forever. To think that you can roll the debt over forever is just hubristic in my mind. Right, and the fiat currency system has not existed for terribly long, and it wouldn't be that surprising if it did take you know, 40 or 50 years before it really unraveled after Nixon decoupled yeah. the dollar from the gold standard, you know, finally. And look, the the value of the dollar has been propped up since then by the petrodollar, right? All oil transactions are conducted using the dollar that creates demand for the dollar. That is now starting to end. You've got futures contracts being denominated in other currencies, which is the first domino of one to fall before. Right. So, okay, so option number one, the debt is fine and nothing bad ever happens. Not very likely. Option number two, the U.S. defaults on its debt. That's a very, very bad. I just, I just yikes. Yes. Uh, we all know that that would be extraordinarily bad, not just for the U.S., but for the world, the world. because of, yeah. of how much uh, of a role the dollar plays. That's option number two. Option number three is the Fed prints our way out of the debt which is almost as bad, I think, as defaulting. And I don't really see a fourth option. I mean, in theory, the fourth option is that we return to some kind of balanced budget and slowly but surely we pay off our debts. And look at our government now. I don't see that happening. They can't can't agree on anything. Right. So, you know, not to get too political, but this is how I explain Bitcoin, which is Bitcoin is a hedge against the currency risk of the U.S. dollar doing what it appears it's going to do, which is lose value very rapidly. And so, you know, I think people grab onto that and understand that at a sort of an intrinsic level, why you would want to have a scarce, valuable asset that survives 
in this kind of, of circumstance. Right. And it's, I mean, you're preaching to the choir. Like this is my, and this has been my investment thesis for Bitcoin for seven years now. Like I remember vividly in Chicago sitting down with one of my, one of my, one of my good friends originally met him through my cousin. He's a bit older than me, but like sitting in a bar and like vividly remember where we were sitting. Like, and I was like, just like being in the futures markets and talking to fund managers for like three years and literally asking them about Fed policy and like what they think and coming to the reason, coming to the realization that nobody knew what the fuck this policy was going to end in. And was like, this shit's going to end bad. And like we had the potential with Bitcoin to transition. I don't know if like, so th- what I'm trying to get at is like, can the transition to uh, a world which is run on a digital currency where we have a reserve currency on the internet, could there be an orderly transition? Like, could the government ever come out and say, hey, we fucked up, probably can't do this, but, like, we're going to actively, like, start transitioning to this stuff slowly but surely. Obviously, would you would lose confidence in the currency overnight, but, like, maybe by slightly supporting Bitcoin uh, and not overtly saying, hey, we're going to transition to this, but, like, being, uh, again, like, uh, light touch or, or being light touch regulation, like sort of just let Bitcoin happen and be like, all right, we're on Bitcoin now. I mean, I hope so because the alternative is not pretty. Right. Uh, you know, I think it depends on on everyone doing a really good job of explaining to each other why this matters and how important it is. And I, I mean, I do, I feel like one of the most amazing things about Bitcoin is that in a way it markets itself because all of us learn about it and get so deep into it that all we want to do is evangelize what it is and why other people should care about it as much as we do. There is no Bitcoin incorporated marketing department coming up with, you know, the advertisements and the narratives and and what have you for selling Bitcoin to other people. It's funny. So I went to, uh, over the weekend, I went to a father-son alumni breakfast at my high school. I went home. My brother, my dad, and I went to this breakfast, and you sit at a table, and alumni get awards and speak, and we had a teacher sit with us, uh, shout out Mr. Grok, but he was like, yeah, so do you work for the Bitcoin company? And I was like, no, like there is no Bitcoin company. So there is that perception that there, like Bitcoin is a company. Right, so. and, and uh, many more people than you might think still believe that. And that includes politicians and regulators. I mean, mm-hmm. we still have conversations with them where what they want to know is uh, who is the CEO of Bitcoin and why haven't we had them in, like we've had Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and whoever, to explain what their company is doing. And it takes a really long time to explain why that doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. And so we have like the coin centers of the world. Where what are your thoughts on like coin center and what they're doing? I think they're fantastic. I, I, I think I, I do too. I think. Huge fan of Raj. Peter Valkenberg's great at explaining the stuff in, in person and in an eloquent way. Yeah, and and Jerry Brito, you know, the, all of them. I mean, Jerry Brito's paper on cash and privacy was incredible. Right, they're they're doing really phenomenal work. I, you know, they get accused of being industry shills. I I don't think that's fair to them at all. I think that they do a phenomenal job of not just explaining. Bitcoin and the crypto industry more broadly, but also putting it in terms that make sense to regulators and politicians. Yeah, and I think that, ca- again, that cash and privacy piece in particular, I don't think they're signaling or anything, but I think it's signaled to me at least, like, hey, you guys are in this for a human rights like perspective and, and bent, and 
I mean, the beaut- I, I love Budan. Akeen, I love you. I know you don't like Queen Center, but like I, I do think that like Queen Center is doing their best they can to put their best foot forward to educate Congress and that sort of and not uh, sort of uh, manipulate uh, the laws in in their view. They just want to educate. That's what it seems to me. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think they do a really good job of pushing the light touch concept. Uh, you know, I hear Peter Van Valkenburg say light touch all the time. I completely agree with him when he says that. But I also just think they've done a great job of distilling down for politicians what Bitcoin is and how to understand it in terms that are uh, easier for, for politicians to grasp. So when Peter Van Valkenburg testified most recently before the Senate, he gave a phenomenal introduction. The one uh, where him and Robini were given a... Yes, it was yeah. him. Yeah, and I actually went to watch. It was <laughs> I, it was almost like a boxing match. It was like Van Valkenburg <laughs> versus Rubini. Uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll I'll leave it to other people to say what needs to be said about about Mr. Rubini, but um, you know Peter M. Valkenburg he gave this fantastic introduction to his testimony where he described Bitcoin as a public payments infrastructure, and I encourage everyone out there to to just you know. Pull that up on YouTube. He did a great job during that whole hearing. Yeah, he did a phenomenal job the whole time. But seriously, his first two and a half minute explanation of of how Bitcoin works, I just thought was so fantastic and such a great way to get your head around it in a way that doesn't require you telling a politician, my goal is to destroy the Fed and eliminate your ability to monitor (laughs) any of my transactions so that I can buy drugs on the Silk Road. Thank you very much, which is not going to be an effective argument to them. So I think think Coinsight center is critical for making the argument that needs to be made so that the government doesn't go after Bitcoin now to the point where honestly, and this is sort of how I think this ends up developing, which is um, by the time the government realizes that they need to take action against Bitcoin, it will be too late for them to do anything about it. And And they might be relieved. Exactly. And I do think that's the case. And I would tell you that if today the government were to decide Bitcoin is a threat to our monopoly on the money supply, we must destroy Bitcoin, they would be able to do so. How so? Uh, it's all technology. The government, I think, right now could, div- could produce enough hash rate to take over the network if they wanted to. Now, obviously, you can fork and you can create a new network and you can try to avoid the government all you want. But as long as they can print the money that has value in the world, they can buy whatever they want. And that includes enough mining equipment to perform 51% attacks. Yeah. But the I believe there would be indicators going off throughout the supply chain like, hey, we've got the biggest buyer like throughout history. Something's going on here. Like. There are alarms. I I would agree with you. I do think Bitcoin is uh, vulnerable to a state attack at this point in time. Um, no, I agree. But like, it would it would be. I sort of want them to try. I sort of want them to try. Is that bad? It's not bad. Uh, look, there's a. I, I love the idea that if the government were to say tomorrow Bitcoin is illegal, that price and adoption would immediately skyrocket. I love that idea. I don't know that that's true. And I'll I'll tell you why, at least in the short term, I don't think that's true. I know a lot of people who own Bitcoin, including my father. So my dad, who would never have been interested in this at all. Boss. 
he thinks social media is like the worst thing that's ever happened and we should just get rid of Twitter and Facebook and all these horrible things and go back to the old world of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal telling us what's true and et cetera. But still, I convinced him to buy Bitcoin by explaining to him why it matters and what it does and how it does for money, what the internet did for information, et cetera. If the U.S. government said tomorrow Bitcoin is illegal, my dad is selling all of his Bitcoin, no questions asked. Really? Definitely. He's not looking to break any laws on crypto anarchist principles about separating money from state. That's just not what he's doing. I will tell you as a lawyer who has law licenses in multiple U.S. states and wants to keep them by not committing criminal conduct, I might have to sell Bitcoin if or get rid of it in some way if the government were to say that holding it was illegal. I think it'd be a huge setback. I don't think it would kill Bitcoin because I think nothing can kill Bitcoin. But I don't want to see that happen because I think we should support as rapid adoption as possible. Right. So what does that say? Like, again, like like you said, like, as much as you would like it to increase price immediately, it probably wouldn't because people would be scared. But then eventually over time want to kill Bitcoin. Like, but what does that like... Again, like the government and how they react to this is going to say a lot. Like, do you want to look like a scared, reactive, uh, sort of hurt deer flailing in the corner? Or do you want to sound like a strong leader? Like, all right, fuck it. This stuff's going to happen no matter what. We might as well lead. And right. How do you how do you get the government to be like, all right, let's just lead. Do whatever you want. Right. Uh, I agree. Yeah. And I don't think that they're going to ban Bitcoin. I I don't see any signals whatsoever that that's going to happen. Uh, Near to it. You can count, I think, on one hand, the number of politicians who have come out and said this should be illegal, uh, full stop. There's only one person I can name for you right now, a California congressman, Brad Sherman, who thinks that Bitcoin is only for money launderers and criminals and should be illegal. I haven't heard anyone else say that. I think the, 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 challenge for us is articulating to politicians why they need to support Bitcoin and why the country will be better off and equally importantly, their constituencies will be better off if they support the development of this technology and innovation and adoption of it. And there are a lot of good arguments, but they are sometimes very hard to convey and to distill and to make concise and easy to comprehend for people who are of an older generation and don't understand technology in the way that you and I do. Um, But that's, I mean, I think that is the challenge now. Right, and it's, I mean, the way you make them understand it, and that's like the weird uh, sort of, or the weird position between a rock and the hard place, I believe the politicians find themselves in because their constituencies, most of America, let's face it, like most of America is struggling. Like the gap between the Guinea index is at its highest it's been ever. Uh, People are living paycheck to paycheck, living on the dole, whatever it may be. Uh, And it seems like I would argue, so what I have been arguing pretty uh, ardently and pretty strongly the last three months in particular is that like Bitcoin uh, and sound money in particular, like is is a money for the common man, the average Joe. Like you should be able to save your purchasing power throughout time. Like your your month. This is what me and Masira talked about. Like Bitcoin as time. Like Bitcoin as a money uh, is is the best representation of your time in in a value structure. Uh, whereas U.S. dollar, uh, you 
sort of get paid for for expending your time expending your energy a certain amount at one point in time but the government prints so much money that you basically devalue that work over time and so <sighs> trying to figure out where i was going here the whiskey's hitting me hard right now but like the, the the government finds itself between a rock and a hard place like hey like what i would argue is like the best way you can help your constituency is implementing like a sound monetary policy built on bitcoin where people can save their money and the the average joe that you're supposed to be representing will be better off but they also can't do that because you also delegitimize everything that the government has worked for up to this point with deficit spending and all of that right but i guess i would what i would add to that i totally agree with you what i would add to that is you don't have to agree with me no i i i do i do i think it's I think it's more about targeting particular politicians who have particular beliefs that lend themselves to approving of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing that you've identified is absolutely correct, which is that wealth inequality is increasing in the country. There is a political disagreement about what the cause is and what the solution is. But we all, I think, agree that wealth inequality is inherently a problematic thing. And in most cases, precedes revolution, right? The more wealth inequality you see, the more likely you are to have viol- uh, even violent revolution. Yeah. That doesn't mean you take all of the money away from the billionaires to solve wealth inequality. That's not no. necessarily the solution. But wealth inequality is a big problem. One of the drivers of wealth inequality is the conduct of the financial services industry as it exists today. Mm-hmm. The less money you have as an American the more expensive it is for you to live. If you have under a certain amount of dollars, for example, in your checking account, most of the large banks will charge you a fee to keep your account open, meaning the less money you have, the more you have to pay and the it's banks. it's as small as $12 a month, but it means something to those people. It really does. It, yeah. it can be the difference between eating dinner or not, or feeding your children or clothing your children or not. Mm-hmm. And that's just one example. This adds up, this compounds in any number of different ways of how expensive it is to be a person without means in America. Talk about like payday loans, shit like that. Exactly. Yeah. And there are a lot of politicians who understand that issue and don't have a solution for it other than regulating that industry more and more and more or breaking up the banks or using some kind of government intervention to address the problem. I think if you go to those politicians and you say to them, there is an engineering solution to this problem that will be much more effective than the political solution that you are considering. And you should support using something like Bitcoin to disintermediate rent-seeking third parties in the finance industry, that those people will be very interested in that idea. And I think most of those people are probably Democrats. And then you look at the Republican side of the aisle and you see a lot of people who are still very interested in sound money and who think that the Fed should be audited and think that QE is insane and that we are on the wrong path in terms of monetary policy. And I think that you can convince them of the more traditional Bitcoiner concept, which is that we should have sound money, not this thing that the government decides how much to print on a given day and tomorrow could decide to start printing more because the S&P 500 is starting to go down again. Right? Yeah. (sighs) Fucking love that, Jake. 
<laughs> I, I feel like I'm this inspired. hasn't. I'm jacked up. I'm about to run through this glass window. I, I feel like this hasn't been very legal, but it has been very fun. So right? I hope that I hope no. this is. Uh, I hope the freaks are enjoying this. And that's what uh, TFTC is about. I want to hear more about you. I don't care about your profession. I mean, I do care about it, but and your perspective on your profession. Yeah. Yep. And and that's so. Like that's like a question I've been asking myself in my head more recently, like, am I crazy? Like thinking this, the, the solution to this problem is that easy. Just providing people with, cause like granted, even in a world where Bitcoin, th- th- we, where we have a Bitcoin standard and people are able to secure their wealth throughout time, there will be people who spend their money thriftily and like, or excuse me, like uh, willy nilly and, and make poor financial decisions. My argument is like, give people the opportunity to just con- conserve their wealth over time. And I, I believe, better things will happen throughout time. And I don't know, like, like, like you said, like it's getting to a point where things could get violent. Like that's how drastic things are. Right. I I think that, I think things are getting tougher. I think that, um, you know, just another example of, you know, when I'm talking to people who don't fully understand what sound money is or why it would matter. Not even sound money. People don't know what money is. No. And, and look, I, neither did I. And that was when I first started going down the rabbit hole. That was the first question I had to ask myself, which was, what is money anyway? Why is this green piece of paper in my wallet worth anything to anyone? And why should it be? And I think that we are coming to a point where more and more people will start learning what money is. I think that in however many generations, people will look back and think how crazy we were for not thinking about what it was that we were using to transact for goods and services. Right, and that's something I've been writing about in the Ben. Like, Bent, it goes back to, like, Iran, 1291, uh, the Caesar... or whoever it was in charge of their financial institutions tried to institute like a a, a debt money po- policy, and he got thrown in the streets and torn to pieces. And they had they tried to take them off the silver dinar system, which they're running on silver. It's not even hard as gold, but it is hard money at the end of the day. And for 690 years until 1931, until the UK took the world off the gold standard, like they had sound money and right and like bankers have warned of this like i care not who writes the laws like give me control of the money and that's all that matters like mm-hmm. thomas jefferson andrew jackson in particular forefathers like we should not have like these messages are there throughout history it seems like the last 50 60 years in particular we've just ignored them right and and look it's it's easy to ignore as long as the system is working and by and large let's be honest our system works okay. It's working. Yeah. Right? I mean, I have a bank account. But I would say it works in spite of itself. It works because, like, and that's funny. You see the chart of, uh, like, inflation and, and what has become, like, less costly. And it's technology, which is enabled by software, which is, like, anybody who can think and write code and think of, like, literally the strings of letters and words that make the code that run the world. Like, it doesn't take any – there's no barrier to entry of the capital needed to learn that other than, especially in the Internet age, like – that stuff has depreciated in cost and mm-hmm. the, the, the barrier entries and those industries in particular have fallen at such a degree that like it has provided us the world that we have today. I would argue that uh, the world has gotten to where it is in spite of, of the monetary policy. Right. It's you're right. It's, it's worked. Uh, it's almost worked by mistake up yeah, until this it's point. Like, it's the, the, your tip. It's like your prototypical, correlation is not causation. Right. But but here's one of the here's one of the side effects of 
allowing, of keeping this system working the way it is, which is if you want to store your value today, right? You make money, you work hard, you want to put money in savings. You cannot save the U.S. dollar, right? The only thing the U.S. dollar has ever done since its inception is lose value. You got to chase that period. Exactly. So now for some unknown reason, for you to store your value, you are going to be an equity holder of a series of corporations that you have absolutely no interest in. And you're going to have a vote in the decisions that the corporation makes, even though you never actually vote, because why would you? And you're going to hope that the financial services industry doesn't manipulate the value of those equity shares you've bought so much that you lose all your money. And freaks, be aware. The uh, the incentives of the financial uh, services industry are perfectly aligned with you. Right, of course. Of course. <laughs> absolutely. Without any sarcasm whatsoever. <laughs> so look, I, you know, I think what I was saying before is one thing that I explain to people is it is crazy to live in a world where to store your value, you need to be an expert in finance and learn how to diversify your portfolio so much that when the S&P 500 crashes 60% like it did in 2008... You're perfectly hedged. You're ready. You, exactly. You, you that is your 5% managed futures allocation to hedge that. Right. Like You knew about that as a bus driver. I don't think we should have to live that way. I right? think there should be an asset that we can buy to store our value that persists for the course of our lives. And people... This is one of these things that, just like money, where people don't really think about what money is until it stops working for them. People don't really think about this idea of investing and how to provide uh, for the rest of their lives until the system stops working. And I think that started for us in 2008 when that system crashed. And QE was so effective in pumping liquidity back into the markets that people basically forgot what happened, right? 10 years later, we have very short memories. We all forgot how hard it was to live through that time. And I don't want something like that to happen again, but I'm looking at the same, you know, fundamentals and the same chart that everyone else is, and it's looking a little bit rocky. And maybe that's something ultimately that's required for people to start thinking a little bit harder about not only what their money is, but how they are storing their value. Right. And there's... And this plays into the whole like high versus low time preference. Like everybody's so high time preference in today's day and age that they they, they don't have the time for introspection to even like think about the the mechanics of the way your world works and and money being money is one half of every transaction on the fucking face of the planet. Like it is the most important tool that we have as humans, and nobody understands what it is, which right. is crazy. It's like, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, time preference is one of those amazing things that I would never have thought of exactly. until I right. got into Bitcoin and started learning about Austrian economics and lowering my time preference to the point where now I have thoughts and conversations with people about issues in terms of decades or centuries as opposed to months or years. And I've found myself uninterested to some degree in conversations only about months or years if it isn't about what's going to happen at the end of my life and in generations beyond. And I think that's a really important shift of focus that Bitcoin is, is helping a lot of people make. Right. And um, one thing I actually learned via playing lacrosse, but always fascinated me is like, uh, just always fascinated me from like the age of 18 when I first found out it was like the the Iroquois nation concept of seven generation thinking like thinking seven generations ahead of you and, and acting to to make the world in which the seventh generation ahead of you is is the best off that they can be based off your actions and right. thinking in that way and I think really changes like we, we're talking about like so that's like 
uh, I hate to put you in this conversation, but like climate change, like climate change in particular is everybody's like, we need to tax, tax, tax. We need to spend our way out of this. It's like, no, think about yourself, what you can do individually, what you can do to cut waste in your own life. What you can do as an individual uh, to set an example, like fucking use reusable bags, fucking clean up the dirty beaches that you see, like do shit individually as an example to the generation that comes beyond you. Hopefully they'll pass that on seven generations beyond. Like everybody's like, we need to fix it now. No, no. It's like, what can we enact? Like, as what, what example can we set where people think, hey, let's think beyond us? Right. Yeah. Well, here, I'll give you my really quick point on climate change as as it relates to Bitcoin. And uh, this this comes somewhat from a, a tweet that I put out probably three or four months ago. And uh, it was one of the first tweets I put out that made me think, you know what? I hate Twitter and I really want to stop doing this because I got so <laughs> uh, much trouble I've for I've had this. so many of those tweets. Yeah, look, I, and I should say, I love crypto Twitter. It's fun. People can troll me all they want. It really doesn't bother me at all. But I had this one tweet and it was after I read an article by Dan Held. Yeah. You know him. I think you've had him on actually. Yeah, yeah. He, he's like a brilliant guy. And he did a really great article about energy usage of Bitcoin versus uh, fiat currencies. He was doing FUD, FUD debunking FUD. Exactly. And I think the the title of the article, so that people can look it up, I think it's uh, Proof of Work is Efficient, something like that. And he makes the point that if you were to, even though we all talk about Bitcoin boiling the oceans and all this stuff, if you were to transition from the fiat currency system, which requires tearing down trees and printing ink on paper and mining gold, which also pours cyanide into the rivers and all these awful, horrible and things. more importantly, protecting the oil with military. Protecting energy. the oil and burning the oil and keeping the lights on in all the banks all over the world and all this stuff. And you compare that to the energy arbitrage that you can do with Bitcoin, where you can mine Bitcoin and keep the blockchain secure using renewable energies in parts of the world where energy is otherwise completely useless, mm-hmm. right? The problem is not is not using the energy, it's transporting the energy from solar and geothermal and hydroelectric, et cetera, to where people are. Exactly. But if you make that transition, you would make a much greater impact on the climate change issue than you will by giving tax incentives to buy electric vehicles. Exactly. And that's hard to think about because how hard is it to transition from the fiat currency system to a Bitcoin system, right? right? But that would probably be much more effective than other efforts that we're making. And in particular with the stranded green resources, hydroelectric, geothermal in particular, like what people need to begin to realize is like these previously untapped resources, like nobody's gone out to tap into those energy because before Bitcoin and then arguably in the future, like artificial intelligence uh, servers uh, may use these resources as well, but like they have never been tapped into and, and who cares if you, uh, care about sound money or Bitcoin at all. The fact that these miners are using this energy just like naturally will create innovation. Like they'll figure out ways to get the most that they can out of this energy, which might, may, hey, maybe they'll find a way to fucking transport it to the cities, like just right. by being out there and, and testing it. Right, you know? exactly. And and to circle back to something we were talking about before, 
uh, about how do you convince politicians in the United States of America that they should support this kind of innovation. That kind of thing creates so many jobs because it's an entirely new industry figuring out how to harness these resources and then keep data centers running and, and all of that kind of kind of behavior. That is a really strong argument for politicians to get behind the, the advancement of this technology. Yeah, and then like going even beyond that, like even in cities uh, like where electricity is made, like the, they talk about the duck graph for like the amount of electricity expended. Like you can look at it on a graph, like it goes up in the morning, then when people are at school and work, it goes down. And then like from five to 9 PM, it like spikes up and then goes down. And as people go to bed and overnight, like instead of powering down then powering back up the power plant, like that would cost too much energy. You find some power plants like orchestrating and engineering ways to sort of create energy so they don't have to turn it down. So they'll like push water up a hill Shout out Joe Looney, who made me abreast of this uh, rare Pepe's creator. But like some of these energy like factories will like get barrels of water, push them up a hill, dump the water and have it come down so they can like recapture the energy and like just sort of have like a net like zero like energy use overnight, like through this through this sort of rigged way. Instead, you could just plug Bitcoin miners in make a digital sound currency, liquidate that, and then like take the profits of whatever you did not expend. Right, know? yeah. Bitcoin is is money minted by energy. I exactly. think it's a really interesting and you can, like, concept. Sec- like, in the, and when you think about like securing the grid and, and leveling everything off and and making the energy market as efficient as possible, like that is what we should be pushing. Right, right. right. And look, none of this is to say that Bitcoin is the solution to every problem facing humanity I think it may be, today. Jay. I think it may be. <laughs> Look, I mean, I just, I guess all I'm saying is I think there are a lot of really interesting applications that we need to explore, and who knows how powerful this right. is, but let's find out. All right. We're, damn, this has been awesome. Hour and 35 minutes in. How much time do you have? Are you? I can hang out, but uh, what, what else you got? I don't know. I guess, I guess that's where, where I want to turn now is like, so are you, you seem optimistic, but I want to make sure. So, like, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of Bitcoin, uh, how governments interact with it or react to it, more importantly? Um, I'm very optimistic. Yeah? Uh, for, I guess, two reasons. One is I think that with enough explanation, uh, the benefits are obvious, and we can explain the power of Bitcoin to governments that would otherwise take a negative view toward it. Um but secondly, and maybe more importantly, I, I think Bitcoin is the honey badger of money. And I really don't think it can be killed. I think it's just a matter of time. And I think that it will prove itself uh, in the market as a, an asset that has true value for people around the world. And I, you know, I think that will start in countries like Venezuela. It's being proven. It already is. You know, there was a New York Times article that came out maybe one or two days two ago. Two days ago, yeah. Yeah. Um, call, opinion piece. Shout out to, our, like, we bashed the mainstream media here uh, pretty hard, but that was a very good piece. Right, but good for them for, for doing that. I mean, especially yeah. the New York Times, who is usually publishing uh, Paul Krugman articles about <laughs> how Bitcoin is, is useless and only for, uh, you know, money laundering and criminal activity. But no, there was this, this uh, op-ed from a Venezuelan economist who says that Bitcoin is saving his family. And I think that that is uh, the type of narrative that we need to convince people of why this is such a powerful and important technology. And it will take care of itself from that point forward. You know, the Lightning Network 
is such an amazing piece of technology. I just started playing with it recently because of the the lightning torch. Did you have Did you have the torch? I haven't had the torch. So oh, we got to get it to you. Take it from Reed Hoffman. I think he's got it right now. Look, I really want the torch. What I want to do is I want to send the torch. Make sure you have your channel set up. That's what like I got I got the torch and I had like shitty autopilot channels. Um, I had to wait like 2 hours to, like close or to set up new channels and make sure I can send it through. Yeah. So I'll admit something embarrassing to you, which is that I don't have my own lightning node. So I would have to use a custodial lightning wallet if That's I were going to do it, which I feel like goes against the whole ethos of the of the whole chain. Luckily for you, Pierre has got like a nice node launcher tutorial. If you got a computer, you can make it happen. I know I have to do that. Also, my favorite thing, since you mentioned that, my favorite new thing on crypto Twitter is Pierre responding to anyone, no matter what they've said, with a, by the way, have you seen my lightning node? <laughs> launcher it's like the greatest the greatest strategy ever so he's a great growth hacker yeah shout out to pierre um but anyway um what i wanted to do was to get the torch and then send it out from the steps of the federal reserve uh, in washington dc and i, I, I if i'm ever got enough, the torch when you're listening to this episode just think about this yeah shoot me a dm because i would love to do this i would love to hold up a sign that says hashtag reckless in view of the Federal Reserve and Hashtag stacking sats too. Exactly, stack them sats. Uh, <laughs> and in, in the shadow of the Federal Reserve, send you know, a, a lightning payment in what will be, I think, the payment rail of the future. Um, but uh, yeah, it hasn't happened yet. Why do you think lightning is going to be the payment rail of the future? Well, I guess I subscribe to the... Uh, container ships not parcels theory of on-chain transactions i i don't think that it's a problem for on-chain transactions to be expensive i think that you know there's some legitimacy to the idea that they must be expensive to be secure uh but i also think that we want bitcoin to be a system that allows us to transact on a daily basis for our normal you know, uh, buying, goods coffee. And, buying goods and services, right? Buying yes. coffee is the classic example. And as far as I can tell, the Lightning Network does that extremely well. Transactions are basically instant. They're basically free. Um, I am not a computer scientist, so I cannot attest to the security of the network. But I feel like enough really smart people are working on this that I do put my trust in them that when they say this thing works, that it does. I'm not putting my life savings on lightning and no one is saying that I should or that anyone else should, but, am I. but we got to keep testing it in the wild. And if it keeps working, then we should keep using it. Exactly. And I completely concur with you. Like, I think this is the future. I think there's a lot of fun out there. Like, Oh my God. Like, obviously there's flaws with lightning. Uh, like your node could crash. It could lose the state, uh, the channel state, and potentially lose your funds. This is a real risk. Know this, and I would argue, I mean, people like flooding lightning, like, oh my god, you're gonna lose your funds. Like it's a custodial. Number one, it's not custodial. Number two, the risk of losing your funds is real. But like, I think everybody has been upfront with that. Like, hey, this is experimental. It's beta. The more we can test it, uh, the faster we'll be able to build it out. And that's why I think there's been like a. a like a cheery, like almost like sarcasm about like experimental lightning, like goading people to be like quote unquote reckless, but like obviously don't f complete disclosure. I think I've had like less than a half a percent of my total Bitcoin holdings on Lightning Network, but it has been fun to test it out. And any of you freaks out there are getting scared by the FUD, like Bitcoin was in a similar situation not too long ago. Like this stuff is 
it's a expanding universe that we're discovering every day and it is going to be inherently sort of risky in the beginning and but the pace at which it's getting more fortified is surprising the hell out of me like i i'm not expected to be at this point a, a year and a month into it you know right i totally agree i i think that so far it is an experiment that has passed with flying colors to this point the vision is there. You can see it, right? You can see it when you play with it. It yeah. is, I mean, it really is. It's one of those things where, you know, the first time I did a Bitcoin transaction, I was just blown away at the idea that I was sending value without having to go through a third party, without anyone being able to stop me, that I could send it anywhere I wanted to. And even though I had to wait for six confirmations, it was still amazing, right? And that took an hour, but that was okay. Mm -hmm. And I had the same feeling when I did my first Lightning transaction, which was, this is really amazing that I can do this. And it is it's sent instantly, and it's almost no cost. And I trust that if I want to take this out of the Lightning network, I can. And in fact, it, it works so far. So, you know, I think it's the same as everything has been, which is don't put more in than you're willing to lose. Don't treat this like it is already the new financial system. It's not. It's an experiment. And I think that Elizabeth Stark and everyone else working on this would say the same thing. Just like in the 1980s, you wouldn't send some extraordinarily important piece of information by email because who knew if it was going to work or not, right? right? But the vision, as you said, is there. It's, to me, one of those things that for most people will be impossible to see in advance, but will be obvious in hindsight. Right. And I think we, who are doing these podcasts now in 2019, are just the people who realize that it's obvious in advance and will be laughing at the people who figure <laughs> out that it was just obvious in hindsight. <laughs> right? Ah, it just makes sense, freaks. It makes sense. Like, And again, think about, like, we talked about at the beginning of the episode, like the pace of change and government trying to react to that change as it's going on. But, like, take government out of the equation. I mean, government is made up of a bunch of individual people. Like, individual people trying to keep up with this change as it's happening in real time is has proven hard. Uh, and I do think it will get better. I do think it will become more obvious over time. So that was, like, a question I asked Monsieur Mamadov last week was, how do you think adoption happens from here do you think it's from a conscious decision that like oh my god this makes sense or do you think people are sort of forced into it like via do you think we're forced into bitcoin from knowledge or situations like venezuela where people have no other option and they start adopting it like uh, i need this yeah i mean i guess to give you my answer to that question you know i think on the one hand the speculators will continue to speculate, right? So I don't even know what Bitcoin's price is right now. Is it like 3,800 something? I couldn't tell you today. Right, it was in the 4,000s for a second, yeah. then it was down. Look, all the people who are gambling with Bitcoin will keep doing that, and some people will get into it in that way. Price will go up again, I'm sure, at some point. Maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's in two years. People will get into it because of price. I don't think that's what drives real adoption for Bitcoin. I think the genuine use cases, as you say, where there is no other option but Bitcoin is what will really lead Bitcoin to assume its rightful place as either an extraordinarily useful tool or as a global reserve currency. And that means, on the one hand, folks like uh, Venezuelans who cannot rely on their government's money because it is inherently unstable, or people in countries where 
they cannot rely on their banks because the banks are the criminal actors who are trying to seize their money, or the people in countries who are opposing authoritarians and need to be able to transact for goods and services without those authoritarians knowing what they're doing because they're the opposition. And in the traditional system, the authoritarian would see their transactions, stop it, and then find them and punish them. I think that that is where this really gets adopted. I also think that corporations who want to get money into new emerging markets where they are having trouble. I mean, even Goldman Sachs at one point was talking about how great Bitcoin was going to be for getting money into emerging markets where there is no financial infrastructure. I think that helps as well. So, I mean, this is what I mean when I say Bitcoin takes care of itself. The value that it offers in allowing borderless, permissionless, censorship-resistant transactions will prove itself to people who need that, and, and that will lead to its its adoption. No, I, I tend to occur with that, too, because that's been, like, another thing. Like, people don't realize they need this until they need it, and there are people around the world who need it now, and I think it's happening. I think it's happening right now as we speak. Um, and that's why we do this podcast, too, like, to educate people and try to help Real like I I'm not saying I I know all this for a certainty, but I'm saying like hey like this sort of makes sense like I think we should focus on this at least in in this particular juncture in time, and I'm very happy that we were able. I love this conversation. This was incredible. Yeah, this uh, was super fun. I think the freaks are gonna like this. I think we learned. I learned a lot tonight. Yeah, no, no, me too. It's always it's it's awesome meeting people in this space. You know we. We all talk to each other on Twitter, and then it's like I know you before I meet you. So exactly. I, you know, I just I, I think it's a great community to be in anyway. It's a mission driven one, right? Would you argue? Uh, definitely. No, look, we all we all come to this, I think, from very different places. You know, I'm I'm from Massachusetts originally. I'll tell you, I was uh, raised in a family that had a very traditional liberal democratic view of the world, which was instilled in me. Uh, and as I've grown and developed, I've, I've developed new ideas and new thoughts. But I, I bring some of that to this space. And there are so many people who have such different backgrounds. And I think it's just amazing for all of us to get together and have a common sense of purpose to disagree about many things, but to agree about this very fundamental issue, which is freedom of money, separating money from state, and disintermediating some of these large corporations that we feel are not a service to humanity at this point. And, uh, you know, I think it's just amazing to be here and to, to see what happens next. Well, thanks for taking the trip to Williamsburg, man. Really appreciate it. I know yeah. it's uh, off the beaten path. You hopped off an Amtrak and right here. I really appreciate that. No, my pleasure. Thanks for uh, the very good conversation and good whiskey. Well, that's, I guess that's all I'm good for, you know? It was like good conversation, <laughs> good whiskey. I, uh, I think we learned, again, I think we learned a lot tonight. I really enjoyed your perspective. I, w I had no idea. Like, honestly, when you came in, I was like, where are we going to take this conversation? I'm very happy with where it went. And uh, I hope we can do this again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, next time we can do the whole securities law, ICOs thing if you want to. I don't really care about ICOs. I care about Bitcoin. You know, I guess here's this is what I'll leave the freaks with, which is um, the securities issue has gotten a lot of press in the last couple of years. The reason that it's gotten so much press is because unregistered securities issuances were the first and maybe only UK use case of the ERC-20 standard on mm -hmm. Ethereum. If not for that, we would never have talked about the securities laws as applied 
to Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency. And within, I think, two, maybe three years, the securities issue will be dead and gone yeah. and in the past. We will have resolved all these issues. The ICOs will have either succeeded as securities or evolved into something other than securities or died off. And we'll be talking about very different issues. And so, you know, I'm always happy to talk about securities law because that's the area of law that I practice. But it's just as much fun to talk about these bigger, broader issues that are still going to be with us in five or 10 or 20 years. Yeah, no, that's why I wanted to bring you on. I, I could tell via t tweeting or s reading your tweets and DMing with you that uh, you have sort of like a pure Bitcoin perspective, which is, is refreshing to see in D.C. Because maybe that's what we can end. What's it like living in D.C., being in that quagmire? I love D.C. <laughs> Not everyone does. <laughs> Look, it's... Uh, it's an interesting place. It's the kind of place where you find out after six months of living in a particular apartment or townhouse or whatever that your neighbor is an enforcement lawyer at the SEC. And it's, you know, it's just that kind of city. It's, it's uh, all over the place. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it's part of the culture in a way to pay attention to what's going on in the country. You know, right. you go to a bar in D.C. and some news channel is on and you're paying attention to what's going on. And for better or worse, it's where the federal government is. It's where the SEC and the CFTC and all these other agencies are. Yeah, so, you know, I think it's a great place to be to meet with those people. Uh, that's not to say New York isn't fantastic as well or San Francisco or many other places in the country and in the world. But each has their unique tilt, I think. DC in particular. That's it? right. I mean, yeah. I guess I guess the thing I like the most about DC is, you know, we we get a bad rap for putting on suits and ties every day, mm -hmm. and I do feel like a lot of people in crypto land discount me because mostly I'm wearing a suit or a tie. Um, but you know, everyone in DC also has their own thoughts and motivations and ideas behind the. There's suit individuals and tie. in DC, man. There are indeed. What? You may be hard to detect. <laughs> But it is true. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot more interesting stuff going on there than, than it may seem at first glance. No, that's why I wanted to bring you on, because I, I honestly do respect uh, your takes. I've written about you in the band a couple t or your tweets in the band a couple times, your tweet threads in the band a couple times. And I do, like, I just got that innate feeling that you have this unique perspective. And I, I feel like we did a good job of explaining it to the freaks tonight. Well, thanks. I hope I didn't let you down. It's impossible to let me down. I'm very. Uh, as long as you're willing to sit here, drink whiskey with me, and talk about the subject, you can never let me down. Anytime, anytime. Jake, it's been a pleasure. I uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your trip to New York. I really appreciate you coming through here. Um, I think the freaks learned a lot tonight. Do you have any last parting, like, sentence, note, anything? Um, I guess I'd just say thanks. It's uh, awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, my DMs are open. Feel free to get in touch with me. Follow me on Twitter at jchervinsky. Uh, feel free to email me. I, I love hearing from people. And um, yeah, I'm just thrilled to, to be in the industry and see what happens next. Yeah, we'll put all that information in the bio. Thank you for joining this week's Freaks. Uh, really love this conversation, Jake. Thank you too. Again, final thank you. Peace and love, Freaks.